0: You can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. It's going to take us a little bit to get there to Exodus 17, but you can go ahead and open your Bible there. And um, we're going to end in Exodus 17, 1 through 8, or 1 through 7. And so uh, if you'll just go ahead and turn there, I, at, at some point uh, later on we'll, we're going to read that whole passage and um, take a look at what's going on there. Um When we became parents, when Grayson was was little, he was, uh, I mean, he's still little. He's not quite seven. But uh, when he was littler, when he was about two or so, uh, we would tell him things. We'd give him instruction, and we'd tell him, you know, put that down. Don't touch that. Don't take that fork into the light socket. And, you know, don't, you know, various other things that would kill him. We would warn him, don't do this. And there would be times where he would listen to us, and there would be times where he wouldn't listen to us. And so we might tell him something, giving some instruction, and he he may or may not listen. And if he wouldn't listen, we'd give him a couple of warnings and a couple of times to really pay attention to our voice. And it may be a relatively minor thing, but we wanted him to pay attention to us. And so if he didn't and he continued to not listen to us, well, what would we do? We would go over to him and we'd take him by the arm and we'd give him a little swat on the bottom. And it's amazing how that sort of wakes a kid up and he now starts to listen when he wouldn't before. And the whole time, what what we're trying to do as parents is we're trying to parent our children the way God parents us is effectively the strategy, okay? It's not very easy because we don't have God's wisdom, but but we pray for it, right? But that's the goal. That's the objective is to parent our children uh, much like God parents his children, and we learned this lesson of how God parents His children in stories like what we're going to look at this evening. As the children of Israel have, they have. Cro- we were reminded last week. We we saw them go across the Reed Sea. The they walked up to the edge of the sea. The Lord blows an east wind, parts the waters. They walk through on dry ground. The last little Hebrew makes his way across, gets onto the shore, and all of the. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, so he sends his armies after the Hebrews. They ride off into the sea because it looks pretty safe. And all of a sudden they find out that it's not, uh uh-oh, mud around their tires. They can't even move, and so they're stuck The last little Hebrew makes his way onto the shore and God brings the waters back together at Moses' command and they uh, clash back together, killing all of Pharaoh's officers and his guards. The children of Israel are now pretty happy about this. Moses writes a poem there in Exodus chapter 15. He's excited. So they pack up and they start traveling south. Now, when we look at the map, you'll see it in a second, there are easier routes into the land of Canaan. There's quicker routes into the land of Canaan. But he's clearly explained to them, I'm not taking you that way. I'm going to take you a different way. And there's a very good reason that he's going to take them the way that he's going to take them, which seems like a very roundabout way to get into the promised land. But he's going to take them a different way and he's going to explain to them the reason that he does. And so Pharaoh's drowning, the the drowning of Pharaoh's army becomes this uh, type, as it were, of Exodus, as we see John point to in Revelation chapter fifteen, of God leading His people once again out of the world and out of the oppression of er- of earthly kingdoms and bringing them into His own promised land, uh, so to speak. That He crushes uh, uh, once again the system of the world. We see that in Revelation chapter fifteen, verses one to four. But now. Having crossed the Red Sea, the children of Israel make their way into uh, through the desert of Shur, and they have arrived at Mara. And some very interesting things happen there. Now, I want to give you a kind of look at a map just to help you see, just to help you get your bearings. Okay, this is. There's going to see two maps. Okay, today, but here's to get your bearings. All right, we got. Uh, bright pointer coming at you. All right. Was that a light that just came on? Yeah. Oh, it is? Okay. Uh, over here, we've got Egypt. We've got the, the Nile Delta all coming down to the Nile River right here. So here's Egypt. We've got the Sinai Peninsula right here, which is where most of our action in the book of Exodus is taking place. In fact, really a lot of the Pentateuch is going to take place right in here. And then we've got the land of Canaan right here, Mediterranean Sea, Uh, Sinai Peninsula, Suez Canal, on down to the Red Sea, which would be down here in the Baptistry. And then, so we've got all of that right there. Everybody clear? Okay, where we think the crossing of the Reed Sea happened would have been right out here east of the land of Goshen. There are plenty of bodies of water out here just east of the land of Goshen, and we think the crossing probably happened somewhere in here. And they're headed on their way south. And we think that just because of some of the cities that are mentioned. Now, if we go to the next slide, this is zoomed in on the Sinai Peninsula. Most of uh, the action is gonna take place right in here. So Mara and Elim, Mara and Elim are gonna take, are right here. And so most of the action is gonna take place here. They're headed down one of these two routes, probably this one right here in orange all the way down to Mount Sinai, which we think is right there, all right? Everybody get that? Everybody gr- grasp their geography? Okay, it's the last map we're going to look at. Last week I overloaded you with cities, this week not too much, okay? So we're going to be a little bit okay there. Um, questions about that? Anything that I can clarify? Well, I, I Go ahead. I didn't understand what you said, sea. So I said, but what's the the Red Sea and the oh, Red sea? Yeah. Uh, la- so last week what we talked about is the the word in the Hebrew text is actually the Yom Suf, which is the Reed Sea. Um, we get the term Red Sea out of the Septuagint, which n- we're not totally sure as to why it's translated there Red Sea in the Septuagint and Reed Sea in the Hebrew text. But the Hebrew text is probably the right one, and when we see the term Red Sea, we I don't think we should think of the sea down here. That's f- f- way too far south. This would be the Suez Canal, and this still is too far south. The cities that they were in, you know, it said the Desert of Shur, that's right here, up here north. So that would have meant they crossed the Suez Canal, really, or they crossed down here in the Red Sea, came all the way back up here to the Desert of Shur. Probably not right. There, there's, there, it's not totally sure, by the way, I should just uh, say this, it's possible that this is all underwater when they go when when they cross. That that's possible. So it's possible that this tongue of the Suez Canal goes all the way up to the Mediterranean Sea, um, and so not totally at least, but 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 possible that there's there's definitely a canal that goes up through here and connects to these lakes. And so it's possible that, that was all part of one body of water. We don't know, but the crossing was probably up here north, where there would have been plenty of water and plenty of depth. To, to be a miracle and to drown a whole bunch of people. All right, so it, it's it's not necessary to have them cross down here at all, especially when the text doesn't say that that's where they cross. So um, so I'm saying read C because I think that's probably the right way to to say it. Um, all right, Qu- more questions on that? Okay. Um, so let's go back to our uh, our stuff. So. What, we are, what we're seeing in this uh, journey from the Reed Sea all the way down to Mount Sinai as they start to journey south. Now now remember, let me go back to this map real quick. Remember, there are quicker ways. There are clearly quicker ways into Canaan from Egypt. Here they are in the land of Goshen. He tells them specifically, I'm not gonna take you on the northern route because the northern route crosses the area of the Philistines right up in here. And so I'm not gonna take you on that route because you're gonna see battle, you're gonna see war. The Philistines are a fighting people and you're gonna see that and you're gonna wanna turn around and go right back to Egypt. And so what does he do? He takes them on the other exit out of Egypt, which is this southern exit right here into the, the, uh, on the way to Shur and out into the, into the wilderness down here in the Sinai Peninsula. He takes them on the southern way. But then they don't turn north and go straight into the land of Canaan. No, no, they go south. Well, why do they go south? Well, remember the Israelites have been in the land of Egypt for 400 years. They've been in there for a long, long time. And so the Lord is not just, we've said a couple of weeks ago, he's not just getting them out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of them. And so there is a lot of wickedness He is going to root out in their journey down to Sinai. Now, we know what happens at Sinai, don't we? What are they going to get at Sinai? They're going to get the Ten Commandments. Well, before they get the Ten Commandments, what does God have to do? He has to teach them to listen to his voice. They've lived for 400 years without listening to his voice. And so now he's going to give them a command and what's going to be their natural response? Yeah, right. Believe it or not, in spite of the fact that they walked up to a massive body of water and watched it separate into two walls and walk across on dry land, in spite of the fact they got on the side of the shore and Moses stretches out his hand over the water and it collapses over the Egyptians and kills all of Pharaoh's army, in spite of the fact that he's going to feed them, he's going to water them, in spite of the fact that they're going to see miracle after miracle after miracle with their own two eyes, they're still going to not believe. They're still going to go into the next trial and they're still going to lack faith. So we like to think, I think, I I, I like to think this anyway, boy, if I lived in the time of Jesus, if I could have a time machine and just go back To the time of Jesus, and I could just spend some time with the twelve apostles and watch him feed the five thousand, and watch him walk on water, and watch him calm the storm, and watch him cast out demons. If I could just see him heal the blind and raise the dead, man, I would not have any problems with faith. It's just not true. (laughs) That's the problem. It's it's just not true. The Pharisees witnessed a lot of the same miracles the disciples witnessed. And they found a perfectly logical explanation for the reason he was able to do what he was able to do. Possessed by a demon. That's how he's able to do it. So it's just not true. They, they have a, a hard time even believing all the miracles. But he, he's taking them from the Red Sea down to Mount Sinai where he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. But before he does, he's going to teach them how to listen to his voice and obey his commandments. And these are going to become two pillars for us tonight. We're going to look at both of them when he actually teaches them to he, listen to his voice and then he teaches them to obey his commandments. And so the people, it, it, their first little trial comes up. And the people are without water for three days, and what do they begin to do? They come down to Marah, and they're without water for three days, and what do they begin to do? But they begin to grumble and complain. I want to look at a couple of these verses that I've got listed here in your packet, and the first is in Exodus chapter 15, verses 25 to 26. It says, um, and, I, and I want to look at the second half of verse 25 where, where God actually tells them this is what he's going to do. He says, um, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and there tested them saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do uh, that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So he's telling them very plainly, if you just listen, you'll be fine. I'm telling you, if you just listen to me, if you just listen to my voice and obey my commands. But then we see in Exodus 15, 22, um, then Moses made Israel set out from from the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because the water was bitter. That's what the word Marah means, is bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? This is not just a simple question, what shall we drink. This is an accusational question. This is an aggressive question. Uh, you know, it's like when your older brother gives you a hug, but he kind of wants you to do what he's trying to tell you to do. We call it a power hug. He gives you a power hug. <laughs> it's it's kind of like that. They're, 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 it's a grumbling complaint that they're, they're giving to Moses. They're, they're kind of forcing his hand. What are, what are we going to do? And there's, there's something put on Moses. They're grumbling against Moses. And so what does Moses do? Well, he intercedes on their behalf, and he comes before the Lord, and he, um, he asks the Lord to provide. And so what happens? The Lord provides for them, Water. So he takes the water that's there at Marah. He shows Moses a log. Moses throws the log in the water. The water t- uh, the water is turned sweet by the the axe. So there's a miraculous provision where the water is changed at Marah from bitter to sweet. And so this is why it's called Marah. And we'll see some more things like this later on. But you, you're, you're, what we start to notice is the children of Israel walk through the desert. And as they go on their wilderness, in fact, throughout their whole life, really, we see this even in the life of Samuel, as the Lord does things, they put memory markers along the way. They, they put things, they change the names of cities so that they know that the name of that city is bitter. Why is the name of that city bitter? Well, because there was bitter water there. But when we went down there, the Lord changed it to sweet water so that we could drink. So they put these little mile markers along the way. They changed the name, like, for instance, of of the city that they came to. I don't even think we know the original name of the city, but they changed it to Maroth because it it means bitter. All right, so now um, there is a prominent theme that's going to come up throughout this wilderness wandering. A a, a couple of really prominent themes, and one of them um, is the grumbling of the people. And so all the way from the Reed Sea down to Sinai, in fact, even after Sinai, as they journey through the wilderness, what we're going to see come up time and time again are these two themes. One is the grumbling of the people, and the second is the Lord's testing of the hearts of the people. Both of those things are prominent throughout the entire Pentateuch. The people are going to grumble, and the Lord doesn't like it. He gets really upset about it. And then he's going to continue to test them, and we're going to see this cycle over and over and over and over again. So this grumbling becomes a, a bit of a motif throughout the um, throughout the wilderness wanderings, and especially we see it concentrated there in Exodus chapter sixteen. So right in Exodus chapter sixteen, we get oh five or so references to the people grumbling. The word is repeated some seven or eight times in just a handful of chapters of the people grumbling and grumbling and grumbling and grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. And the Lord does something miraculous and it comes to the next time of testing and the people grumble again and the Lord doesn't like it and He uh, threatens to punish them and He continues to provide something miraculous for them and yet they come upon a time of testing and they continue to grumble again. And so these two themes, the Lord is going to test their hearts and they're going to continue to grumble. Now, why would he test their hearts? Why, why would he do that? Why would he poke the bear, so to speak? If he knows they're going to grumble, why does he continue to poke? Say again? Yeah. To sh- So, uh, it's obvious that the Lord knows what's in the heart of man. There's no question about that throughout the scripture. You'll see this phrase, this idiom pop up time and time again in the text, I will test them to know what is in their hearts and whether they will obey me or not. And I think what we're supposed to understand from that is not that the Lord doesn't know what's in their heart, but so that the works that are in their heart will be manifest for everyone to see. So that his punishment for them and his discipline for his own children will be warranted and justified because he's going to follow up their grumbling or their complaining or their lack of faith. He's going to follow that up, not only with miracles, but he's going to follow it up with discipline and that discipline is going to be justified. And why is it going to be justified? Because of his testing. As he continues to test the sins of their hearts continue to rise to the surface. It actually works the same for us today. It's exactly the same. There's no difference between Old Testament and New Testament when it comes to that. Everything that's in our life, everything that's sitting before us, is in some manner a test from the Lord. And in some way, these kinds of things continue to poke at our heart and bring to the surface all the sinful tendencies in our lives. It's a mercy to us so that we can know what is in our own heart. How could we possibly know the sin that's contained in our own heart until we enter a time of trial and it comes to the surface and then we realize that's been in there the whole time? All right. So these two themes come up and we're going to look at one, then we're going to look at the other. Um, where are we at? Yeah. Um so there is the motif, the, uh, which is just a pattern. That's all motif means. It's just a pattern. So the, this grumbling of people becomes sort of a pattern in the wilderness wanderings. This is the first one we're going to look at. Um, yeah. Uh, what the, one of the reasons that this grumbling is such a problem, and one of the reasons why the Lord seeks to really discipline it and, and actually punish the people for it is because grumbling against the Lord's appointed leader is grumbling against the Lord himself. Now think about this for just a second. If the Lord is sovereign, and if all of the things in our life are governed by his sovereign hand, and if as we come upon them, some of them may be blessings and great, just wonderful things that we rejoice in, and some of them may be hardships and trials, but if all of those things are driven by the hand of the Lord, then what does it mean and what does it say about us when we grumble about those things? What does it say when we complain about those things? Yeah. And, and, and to go one step even further than that, we're actually complaining about God himself. So here's the, the, the image that you need to be thinking about when you see Moses leading his people through the, land, through the wilderness. Moses is God's appointed leader for these people. He actually went into the desert and got him. He he sent him out in the desert in the first place, but then went out in the desert and got him. Preserved his life back when he was a child. And for what purpose? So that he could come there and deliver the children of Israel out of bondage. He even tells Pharaoh, for this reason I raised you up that I could harden your heart and show my power, not only to you, but to my own children. So all of this is by the hand and direction of the Lord. So when you take something that's coming in your life like this, like they're doing, and you complain about the leader that God has put in in your life, you're not complaining about that leader. You're complaining about God himself. But the reality is we're, we're tempted to look at everything in the physical. Everything for us becomes the physical. Things that I can see, taste, touch, Hear, smell, everything that I can interpret through my senses. That's the way I interpret life. But what God, and they're tempted to do the same thing. They've been 400 years without serving God. And what God is teaching them to do as He takes them out of Egypt is to learn to interpret life through the spiritual, learn to trust Him, learn to look for the supernatural. Learn to look at what he's provided them as directly from his hand. And to grumble against it then is to grumble against the Lord. And so what does he do? Let's look at Exodus chapter 16, verse eight. This is where we first get this idea that it's grumbling about the Lord. It's about halfway down the first page on your your verse sheet there, Exodus 16, eight. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full. Because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. Well, at this, up to this point, by the way, in the passage, all it has said is they grumbled against Moses, okay? But here Moses is saying, when you grumbled against him, and then he pauses and he says, what are we? You can see the puzzled looks on their face. Grumbling against God? We haven't grumbled against God. We're grumbling against you, you buffoon. And he says, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us but against the Lord. Now, this is going to happen more throughout the book. We're going to see this happen in Numbers. So look at the next passages there. Numbers 14, 27, 29. And we're going to read the following verses as well. Um, The Lord is not happy about this at all, about their grumbling. Look at what he does. He says, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. See, we're always told that they took a trip lap around the desert because they lacked faith. The spies went in, they looked at the land, they said, well, we can't beat these guys. And so they came back out and they said, there's no way we can beat them. And God sent him around the desert for that, but there's more to it than that. They are also grumbling against him. Well, you brought us out here to bring us into this land where we can't even defeat the enemies? What's going to happen to us? I've heard enough of your grumbling. I'm going to kill every last one of you, 20 years old and older. All right, so then uh, we see in the next passage in Numbers 14, 36 to 38. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land... Who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land? The men who had brought up a bad report in the land died by the plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, uh, remained alive. Then look at number 16. This is a couple of chapters later, number 16, 41 to 45. Um, this is after Korah's rebellion. Korah rebelled against uh, Moses and said, you know, who are, who are you and you and Aaron? Who are, who's Moses and Aaron? We should listen to them. Okay. But on the next day, uh, uh, and the, the earth opened and swallowed Korah and his whole family. But on the, on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. All those people grumbling against Moses and Aaron, those are the people of the Lord. You just killed them. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. That's where God dwells or where God meets with his people. And behold, the cloud covered it. Uh Uh-oh, God's coming down. And the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Needless to say, the Lord doesn't like grumbling. <laughs> I mean, and, and we, we would like to think that this kind of thing has, you know, this is, well, this is an Old Testament thing, right? I mean, don't we draw a line here? We draw a line here with the Old Testament. <laughs> the Lord doesn't do that kind of thing anymore, right? I mean, come on. He's a... Uh, these people are grumbling. He appears in the smoke and all that kind of stuff. we do not going to see that anymore, grumbling. He doesn't really care much about that, except that Paul actually connects this experience of grumbling, the passage that we're reading, to the church age in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 to 12. And he says, 1 Corinthians 10, 9 to 12, we must not put Christ to the test just as they did in Sinai, is the exact same. Any grumbling is a complaint about what the Lord has brought to your life. Think about that for just a second. That, uh, as the old preacher used to say, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. (laughs) Because that really hits us all. Every last one of us gets caught up in grumbling. And this is what the Lord thinks about it. That could be a boss at work. That could be things in our church. That could be things at home, parents, siblings, daughters, children. Circumstances that come about in life that seem to be just random happenstance. Yet they bring to the surface this grumbling component in our heart. It's dissatisfaction with the Lord's plan, a failure to trust God. And it's complaining about what he's brought you. All right. What's that? Don't make it more than that. Yeah, I, but you know, I think even Jesus points to the Pharisees and says, if you don't believe my words, believe the things that I'm doing. Believe the signs that you see. So even the signs that are given to them, the miracles that are given to them, are given to them so that the next time you trust, so the next time you believe, and yet they still can't do that, not to his word or his deeds. They can't find a reason to trust him on any front. Sure, yeah, absolutely. No question. Right, right. Um, so he says, uh, where am I at here? I think I'm on the back here. Yeah. Um, so the Lord also tests the hearts of his people in obedience to his laws. So this is the second part of it. He's going to give them laws or things that they, he wants them to obey, and we're going to see whether or not they can obey them. Now, why is this important? Well, because he's about to give them a whole bunch more laws. All right. So think of these kinds of things in the journey from the Reed Sea to Mount Sinai as sort of training wheels for what he's about to give them. And he's going to just give them some very simple commands, and let's just see if you can follow them. Do they? Absolutely not. And we see specific examples of how they don't. First, he tests their trust in his provision. So let's look at Exodus 16, 4, 12, and 19. 4, 12, and 19. 16, 4, 12, and 19. Somebody read those for me. I think I have 4 and 19 on there, so... So remember, they've been given the bread. They're given the bread and uh, the the manna from heaven. And they're told very specifically, you can't leave any of this over till the morning. You're going to collect just enough for you for the day. And anything that's left over until the morning is going to spoil. It's just a, a, a miracle, a work of the Lord. Except for on Friday. On Friday, you can gather enough for two days and that will last you through the Sabbath on the following day so that you don't have to gather any on the Sabbath. Okay, those are really the two things that he's going to tell them. So we see the first thing. There's a test in the provision. Well, you know, I don't know if the Lord's really going to bring this manna tomorrow. So, you know, it's Monday, and I tend to get hungry on Tuesdays also. So why don't I just go ahead and gather for Monday, and then, you know, why don't I just sneak a little bit in the bag just in case something doesn't happen tomorrow I've got something to munch on. Look at Exodus chapter 16, 20 and 21. The first passage on this back of your verse list. He says, "But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part till the morning. And it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could, as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot," It melted. So did they trust him? Nope. They didn't obey that law. They couldn't. They just couldn't find it in them to trust him. Well, then we get the next thing. He tests their obedience to rest on the seventh day. And so we see this in Exodus sixteen five, twenty two, and twenty, and then twenty two and twenty six. He says, "On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily." Then it says, Exodus 16, 22 to 26, on the sixth day, that's, a, that's Friday, on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came, to Moses, came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Uh, and Moses said, eat it today for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will you will not find, uh, find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it but on the seventh day which is the Sabbath there will be none. Okay, so very clear. You're going to rest on the seventh day. I'm going to provide you enough on the sixth day for it to last both days. But did the people listen no, look at Exodus 16, 27 to 30. On the seventh day, some of the people went out together but found none. <laughs> Still they couldn't listen to his voice. Still they couldn't obey his commands in spite of all of the things that they had seen. We're talking about um, something that provides food for them that is essentially the, what amounts to about a coriander seed is what it's described as, a white coriander seed and tastes like uh, honey, uh, sweetened bread, sweetened cakes. And this stuff is, is being provided for them in the wilderness. They're gathering it up. They're making cakes out of it. If they leave it to the next day, it spoils. Well, except one day a week, it doesn't, for whatever reason. And yet, in spite of this miracle, which is crazy, they still... Uh, I still don't think he'll provide for me tomorrow. They still can't listen to his commands. They still can't obey his voice. All right. So what do they do? They're told even with this uh, manna, this manna also becomes one of those markers in their brain, one of those signs that they're supposed to take with them. Uh, Timothy mentioned the bones of Joseph that they're carrying with them as a remembrance Right of the fact that God had promised to his father Abraham that he was going to give him this land. And so Joseph is saying, don't let my bones be buried in Egypt, for goodness sakes. Take them with you and bury them. So just like that, and just like they changed the name of a city to Marah, which gives them a reminder of the way the Lord has provided, what do they do with these, with these uh, coriander seeds, these, these, uh, uh, this manna from heaven? Well, they put it, they gather it together and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant as a constant reminder. This is going to happen in the future, so I'm just cluing you in as to what they're going to do. But they're going to take this and they're going to put it in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder that the Lord has provided for his people in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Now, um, this, this word manna is it's sort of interesting. The, the word comes from a, two Hebrew words, manna, which I know that's hard to remember, uh, but <laughs> manna, which literally means what? It. What is it? So when they, when they saw it on the ground, they were like, yeah, what is it? And so then that's just what they called it. They called it, what is it? So we get the word manna from the Hebrew phrase, what is it? Um, and so they, uh, they come now fr- from Marah, they travel to Elam and entered into the desert of sin. Now it's just a coincidence that it's called the desert of sin, it's... It, has no correlation to our word, sin. But uh, they, they go into the desert of sin uh, after leaving Egypt for, for, 40, uh, for 45 days. And um, while they're in the desert of sin, here's the change that takes place in the text. The people begin to put the Lord to the test. Uh-oh. That's your first sign as you're reading that you're going, Oh, things are not, that, that's not That's not good. I've read the future, and it doesn't, it doesn't look bright for you when you do this. But that's our first sign that he uses that same phrase. They're going to put the Lord to the test, and this time the, the Israelites are doing it to, um, to, to the Lord. Let's, let's take a look at Exodus chapter 17. We're going to read 1 through 7, and we're going to look at what happens there. He says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin, "'by stages,' meaning, meaning in groups, "'according to the commandment of the Lord "'and camped at Rephidim. "'But there was no water for the people to drink. "'Therefore the people quarreled with Moses "'and said, "'Give us water to drink.' "'And Moses said to them, "'Why do you quarrel with me? "'Why do you, put, why do you test the Lord?' "'But the people thirsted for, for, there for water.' And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us with our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you will strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying Is the Lord among us or not? Okay. So what? What all is happening here? They're putting the Lord to the test, but the people begin by protesting against Moses yet again. They're quarrelling and they're grumbling. They're, it, in fact, it changes even. They change even the name of the city here. There's another memory marker of what the people did there. Um, they quarrelled and they tested. The name Merib- Meribah uh, means testing. The name Massa means. Uh, uh, sorry, the name Masa means testing, the name Maraba means quarreling, so they changed the name. Uh, to reflect what happened there. But they're protesting against Moses' leadership um, by quarreling and grumbling against him. And so they're mu- murmuring, essentially, against God himself. And they're questioning the power that God has. They're questioning M- God's decision-making in putting Moses as their, their leader. And so the people give three statements. And you need to pay attention to the three statements that are given. The first two are quoted directly from the people. The last statement is really the author, which we think is Moses, his summary of what the gist of what the people were trying to communicate uh, in their quarreling. So this is not simply just, Moses, please give us some water. This is, not, this is not like that. Have you brought us out here to kill us? Please. That's not what's happening here. They're actually coming before Moses and there's three things that they're saying. First, they say, give us water. The second is, did you bring us up out of Egypt so that you could kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And then the last one is a summary. What they're essentially saying in their quarreling is, is the Lord with us or not? Is he actually here or not? So in spite of the fact that they have been, that they have uh, put blood on their doorposts and watched an angel of death kill the firstborn son in Egypt. In spite of the fact that they marched out with all the silver and gold in Egypt. In spite of the fact that they walked up to the Reed Sea and had it part in front of them and walk across on the other side. And in spite of the fact that they then turned around and watched the waters close back over Pharaoh. In spite of the fact that they've seen God provide for them food and water. Now they are here questioning again is the Lord actually even among us? We see the same kind of protest come up by the Pharisees in regard, response to Jesus' miracles. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Well, how else are they going to explain these miracles? Witchcraft. Moses is doing this some, somehow. We're not sure that this is the Lord. So now they're beginning to even question whether or not the Lord... So they get together... They kind of come up with this plan, essentially, of coming up to Moses and putting to test the Lord himself. Well, look, Lord, if you're here with us, then you'll provide water out of nothing. And if you're not, we'll all die. That's the sense of this text. Can you imagine the gall to do that? Can you imagine, having seen now how the Lord responds to grumbling, can you imagine how the Lord feels about their quarreling and about their grumbling and about their griping? I'm pretty sure he doesn't like it. So what does he do? Well, uh, oh, I should say that. Their sin is an accusation against Moses and the Lord. So Moses, what does he do? Well, I'll wait for everybody to give that accusation against Moses and the Lord. Um, So, what does Moses do? He cries out to the Lord out of fear that the people are going to kill him for not providing them water for thirsting them to death. So, how does the Lord respond? Well, he he gives Moses a command. He tells him what to do. He tells him to strike the rock. With the staff, but look closely at what he says. I think this is probably the most profound thing in all of this passage. Look at verse seventeen or chapter seventeen, verse uh, five, and, uh, starting with verse five and six. And the Lord said to Moses, "Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff. What staff?" say it again the one that struck the nile what happened when moses took that staff and struck the nile it turned to blood and why was that significant took away the drinking water for egypt so moses has done a lot of things with that staff moses stretched out his hand over the red sea and it parted in fact way more recently than the first plague in egypt God doesn't identify the staff as the one that parted the Red Sea. He doesn't even describe the staff as the one that was stretched out over the waters that brought the waters back and killed Pharaoh. He describes it as the staff that struck the Nile. The staff that struck the Nile, this is the judgment stick. This is the staff of judgment that took away the drinking water for the people of Egypt. Take that stick. Put it in your hand Uh uh-oh, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. We know. That's the stick that brought the plagues on Egypt. Judgment's coming. So he tells him to strike the rock in verse 6. So the rock, uh, the stick of judgment that Moses took in his hand was designed to take away the water of the Egyptians. But in Moses' case, and in the case of the children of Israel, it's the stick that's going to actually provide the water for God's children. But it's interesting how we get there. Because look at what he says. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand... Where? Where? Before you. Where? Where? On the rock. So here's Moses taking the judgment stick. God tells him, take it. You're not judging your people. In spite of the fact that they are in immense sin, take that stick of judgment and strike the rock. But don't just strike the rock. I'm going to stand on the rock when you strike it. Well, that's interesting. That's sort of strange. It's like Moses is being told to take the stick of judgment and strike God with it instead of His people. Paul actually makes this connection in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Look at the passage there. It's the last one on your, your verse list. He's describing this trip out in, the, out in the land there, and he says, "...and all drank the same spiritual drink." For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And where does he get off saying the rock was Christ? Because the rock was stuck, struck with the stick of judgment. And so was Christ. That's the implication. That as the people are out in Egypt, they deserve, out in the, out in the wilderness, they deserve to be struck with the stick of judgment. And yet, what does God do? Instead of striking them dead like he could have done, the stick of judgment is used on him. He didn't have to stand on the rock. What is he standing on the rock for? As a sign to the people. If you follow me, I will bear your judgment, the judgment that you deserve. And what do we see happening in the cross of Christ, except exactly that. The last one is, Paul tells us the rock was Christ. Questions, comments, concerns? Fears, hopes, dreams, pet peeves? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they drink from it twice. Okay, so here's something very interesting. Moses is told, here, I'm going to go and I'm going to sit on the rock. God is taking the brunt of the judgment. It's a sign to the people that God's taking the brunt of judgment, right, on their behalf. The next time Moses gets to the rock, what is he told to do? Speak to it. What does he do instead? Not good. Takes that stick of judgment and he says, you rebels... And he strikes the rock as a sign of judgment against the people. That's a problem. So the rock that followed them is that. It's, they, they drink from it twice. They're, it's going to be the rock that provides water for them around the desert as they, they travel. It's in the same location. It doesn't actually follow them, but it's, that's the, the symbol. Questions? Any other? <clears throat> yeah. You know, um, one of the hardest things that I ever, that I ever had to learn, it was a actually a very painful time in my life, um, was how to submit to authority. Uh, And God taught me this through a long process of of complete disregard for authority, where um, I was completely sinful. I was an idiot. And I sat down with a professor of mine uh, who was a mentor of mine in in seminary, and we started reading through just first century Christians, first century, second century, third century Christians, their, their own personal writings. And this theme of submission to God's appointed leaders and people like anybody that's in your life that's an appointed leader uh, continued to come up over and over again. And it was as though the first century Christians are saying, this is the vast majority of what God has communicated to his people over and over and over again, is submission to authority. Um, this is true of our kids when we're parenting them. That, And I think one of the big shame, uh, shameful things of our culture now is that we get, we're, we're getting away from discipline of our children. And the problem with that is not that we have unruly children. The problem with that is that we're rejecting the fact that they're God's children. They're not ours. We don't have the right to determine how to parent them we have to parent them the way God tells us to parent them because they're his. And so how do, we, how do we do that? Well, if they can't learn to listen to your voice, how are they ever going to learn how to listen to God's voice? It, it, it's interesting that the commands that are given to children, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, and it, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The land promise is for the the adults' obedience to God. How is it that the children get extended that promise when they listen to their parents? Because their parents represent a godlike authority to them. That comes with both judgment for the parents who abuse that authority, and that comes also to the kids who reject that authority. If you don't learn to listen to your parents, well, when you become adults, you're not going to listen to me. You're going to wander off and then you're not going to be living in the land anymore. But it, it, it's something that the Lord has been teaching us since we were in the cradle, and will' continue to teach us until we're in the grave. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We know your word is true and so relevant to today, even though it was written 3,500 years ago. Um, May we submit to it. May we learn to counsel ourselves in all life situations with your words and not our own. That's very difficult. And we pray for help and wisdom and guidance. We pray that we would be creatures of the word. That we would continue to come back to it time and time and time again. That we would live and breathe it. That it would ooze out of our pores. So that all of our thinking, all of our actions, all of our words and deeds, all of our decisions, would all be grounded in the wisdom that comes from your word. Father, tune our ears to hear your voice. Tune our ears away from the voices of the culture, the voices inside of our own head, that we may hear perfectly your word and live our life by it. In Jesus' name, amen.